Welcome back, everybody, to Couch to Couch, Making Therapy Makes Sense with Chuck LeBlanc. Today I have a very special guest, a friend of mine, Dave Robinson, who's also the uh, co-host and the, well, we're going to be co-hosting an upcoming podcast together that I've been talking about on this show a few times called Men Tell Stories, and I'm looking forward to, to Dave telling us a little bit more about it uh, in a minute. But Dave, uh, I'm going to introduce Dave here. Dave is the owner of Shift Counseling Services, a private counseling practice that offers individual therapeutic trauma-informed counseling for men 18 years and older. It's hard to meet Dave and remain unchanged. His compassionately curious counseling approach challenges and transforms, and his passion for excellence is infectious. Dave brings over 15 years of coaching and counseling men in understanding the complexity and impact of their father-son relationship to his psychotherapeutic practice. He specializes in helping men of all ages, stages, orientation, and cultures process and make sense of the pain, both emotional and psychological, often associated with this, the type of influence, messages, and lessons they learned from the predominant father figures, peers, and media. Dave, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you here. Thanks, Chuck. It's uh, it's great to be here, and that's um, uh, it's hard to listen to that and you know know that that's me you're talking about. <laughs> it's quite the intro, but from what I've known you for as long as I have, it's it's all entirely accurate. <laughs> well, Your thanks, passion man. is definitely infectious. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate. Well, all right. That. So I, I want you to uh, help the clients. I want to help the listeners to find you and like try to patch in anything I might have missed from the intro. Well, I think that um, the intro was spot on. I'm, I run a trauma-informed um, private counseling practice for men uh, 18 years and older. And um, I'm, I operate out of a sleepy little town called Guelph. <laughs> it's not sleepy, but <laughs> Good old Guelph. I refer to it like that. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. The town that sounds like a verb. Um, <laughs> And the um, and and that's it essentially. Um, you could reach me at uh, uh, shift-counseling.ca, and um, that's my website. And I really don't do other other than word of mouth and the Psychology Today ads that you and I, um, you know, advertise in. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's it. That's where you find me. <laughs> so shift-counseling.ca is the best place, and they can contact you, send questions, emails, all that stuff. Absolutely, at david at shift-counseling.ca, anytime. Awesome. Well, all right, so I thought I'd give you the opportunity here because we've been working on a podcast for a while now, and I thought I'd give you the opportunity to introduce Men Tell Stories uh, really quickly, and then we'll launch into today. Okay, yeah, the scheming and the dreaming of mental <laughs> stories. So, you know, the uh, the origin story of that podcast is it's a play on mental stories and men tell stories. So the idea is that, you know, we talk about the stories that happen in men's lives, men's journeys, their, um, the, the situations they get themselves into, the foibles, the fuck ups, but most importantly, the fantastic recoveries, the things that they've done, that they've learned from, the lessons learned, the lessons that I've learned in my life, the lessons that I'm presuming that the two of us have learned in both our lives. Yeah, and... the, the many fuck ups <laughs> that I've yeah, had. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And, um, you know, and, and it really is, um, the focus of that podcast is to make it accessible to everybody. Mm. Um, 
because everyone is on their journey um related to it my belief anyway that um we're on our journey to figuring out the hidden suffering that many of us carry within us mm -hmm. and and how do we break free how do we break free from that and how do we how do we find our joy and our passion and for many men their purpose in their life in a way that fulfills them in ways perhaps that they didn't even think were imaginable to mm -hmm. them um yeah and there's so many specific things that can get in the way mm -hmm. of men really realizing that part of their life and um and that's essentially the what we talk about and whatever brilliant things you want to add like you usually do so. <laughs> i have to throw it in there i know like the original thought behind the process of of going well the thought behind the podcast was the fact that both of us focus on male mental health like in our practices and that's mm -hmm. something that's really we're really passionate about because of all of the barriers in place both from a societal perspective and internal to like male culture that kind of holds mm -hmm. us back you were mentioning hiding the uh, emotions or i forget how you put it but a lot of the ways that we're taught as men is we're not allowed to be vulnerable and have mm -hmm. these conversations which is intensely isolating intensely isolating and so part of the podcast was just two guys who happen to be therapists who fucked up a lot and deal with these struggles ourselves talking about our journeys in them in hopes to invite men to start realizing that they're not so alone in it yeah like but just for the record you fucked up way more than i did just yeah so. probably right. i've lived an amazing short life so far <laughs> <laughs> ouch okay and well, that's I'm awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I have talked about my life so far on the podcast, so I, I could tell the listeners are both laughing and going, oof, yep, has he ever. Yeah. So, so on today, I, I wanted to throw out, you know, both of us are dealing with male mental health. We deal with our own mental health. There's so many pieces that are wrapped up in the male mental health space. And I know you and I often talk about shame and shame and guilt is something that I talk about a lot on the podcast. And then you also mentioned here the predominant, you know, father figures, peers and media and how it influences this. Mm -hmm. And so before the podcast started, we talked about like a formula that you had been seeing and thinking about for a while that really interests me. And it's shame, placating and performance. Mm. So I want to like turn the microphone over to you to see where do you want to jump in what's the most interesting like tidbit to chew on and then we'll like launch into it oh man because we know <laughs> that i will talk about pretty much everything so i'm gonna i always have to give the mic to the guest otherwise i'll just go for an hour i just what that for me just so you know it's like standing over a dark well and you know tossing a pebble in and wondering when it's gonna hit the water yeah. i i really like there's so many things to to consider um related to shame I, my personal theory is that I believe shame is um, is something that men struggle with on a regular basis, and I'm just because my prime my primary audience or my clientele is men. Um, I I don't mean to add gender to um, the concept of shame. I know women mm -hmm. and men alike, and mm -hmm. human beings. Let's just say that all have experiences in some degree or another with shame mm -hmm. 
either within themselves or people who are grappling with their own shame. So by vicariously experience, experiencing it through someone else or really struggling with their own or trying to understand their own shame. Mm -hmm. um, the way in which I describe shame to men and I, what I do with my, with my male clientele is uh, I walk them through, um, well, just let me just um, back step just one second, mm -hmm. because as you know, that I've been doing this for a long time and I've, I've traveled to different parts of the world, working with men, mm -hmm. different languages, different cultures, and the one universal language that, you know, crosses all borders and boundaries is pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. And a lot of men keep their pain and their suffering hidden mm -hmm. and they don't know how to access it. And I would expand on that and say, just speaking from my own experience that before I started my journey, um, I didn't know what I was feeling. I didn't know why I was feeling it. And I certainly didn't know how to express what I was feeling. Mm -hmm. And so my mission, first of all, is to help men understand, okay, so what are you feeling? Why are you feeling it? And, and now how do you express that? So other people can, can understand, can know you in a different way. Mm -hmm. Um, and for many men, that takes a, a high degree of vulnerability. And vulnerability is often a shield that I believe that shields our shame, mm -hmm. or rather shame shields our vulnerability. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so I categorize shame with men by doing exactly what you just said at the beginning of the show, Chuck, which is the distinction between guilt and shame. Mm -hmm. And so for me, um, I believe that guilt is you know, that I, the fundamental principle is I made a mistake, but to carry that forward, I know better. I'll do better next time. I want to make this right, mm -hmm. clean up my mess. Whereas shame, as many people have said this before is instead of if guilt is I made a mistake, shame is I am the mistake, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> shame is I am the mistake, mm -hmm. which means that if I've made a mistake with another person or I've done something that is an error, and I believe fundamentally that the cause of that error is something that's broken inside of who I am, mm -hmm. then there's not a whole lot of room for me to do anything other than cover up my mistake mm -hmm. because shame gets its power from secrets and what is hidden, mm -hmm. right? Lying, denying, shifting the blame when someone calls me out and I feel my shame. And then, you know, we go into man mode to cover up shame, mm -hmm. fix, explain, control, defend. Those four things are what a lot of men, including myself, have mm -hmm. done to cover up our shame. Mm -hmm. And so when men start to understand that, then they can start to see the power of disidentifying with their shame. Um, you know, and what I mean by that is that if men who have, men who have gone through their life believing that they are their shame versus feeling their shame mm -hmm. really grapple with an inescapable filter that they've put in front of them so that things that they say that come out of them come through their shame filter mm -hmm. and other people hear the shame but they might not know what it means it means that they're hypersensitive they they take feedback um, they're they take feedback personally. Um, there's this, uh, vigilance around making mistakes and wanting to make things right and fix it. Mm -hmm. And on the 
and you know there's all kinds of other elements to that but the other is when people are sharing things with a man who's identified with his shame it comes through his shame filter into who he is mm -hmm. so things they hear uh hit deeply and mm -hmm. and can be wounding and and other people let's say who are having those conversations with them men might not understand um that these men are feeling the shame they're feeling i don't know if that makes sense it's, it's a lot that of makes, words <laughs> that makes a lot of sense and it's giving me goosebumps because i we view this very similarly and i like the idea behind the shame filter or the shame lens right because then in a lot of ways when someone like uh, let's say criticizes and it goes through the shame filter to give feedback well then the feelings you get are designed to reinforce that shame like see i am a piece of shit or see i am an idiot how do i hide that and that becomes like this never-ending cycle and what i find to be very dangerous but also the most common thing that i see both from myself in the past and in clients is that they don't know that they're feeling shame they don't know what they're feeling it's, it's almost like pre-built and that comes from an outside influence let's let's say like parenting styles they were you know somebody had weaponized shame against them causing them to use that filter when they were kids or media or all of these things kind of like men and emotions right we're not allowed to have any other emotions other than anger and frustration otherwise we're weak big boys don't cry that's right and so that filter goes way up and if you don't know the filter is there which is common then you don't know what the shame is either it's all you feel is the hurt mm -hmm. that i find amazing so how would how do you grapple with that what do you think of that like well i think there's from? a it's a short step between understanding where a man identifies the shame and where it comes from mm -hmm. and trauma mm -hmm. and you know trauma's becoming more and more um, reimagined in the sense of who's been who's been hit by trauma in their life or experienced trauma and i think shame is um i was just watching the wisdom of shame by um by gabber monte and mm -hmm. um what an amazing what an amazing movie that is mm -hmm. and uh sorry the the wisdom of trauma not the wisdom of shame and um and the connection between trauma and shame and um it really is they're almost I, I don't even know how to describe that the the complexity of intersectionality between shame and trauma is is really um significant and has can can take hold of a man in a way that um becomes very challenging to mm. separate and mm. it takes time for from for people for humans to understand the relationship between the two mm -hmm. and um on the other side of that like all the coping mechanisms that that men that i see men and and that i have done in my life mm -hmm. um use to cover shame really kind of reveal the story like for example you know we invent personas i believe in mm -hmm in Jungian theory, right? Persona and, and uh, true self or mm -hmm. um, I'm not exactly sure the exact term. I use the word character. Mm -hmm. So for me, persona is something that I invent to cope with life. Mm 
-hmm. and character is something that I evolve, mature, and and develop through life. And if all I do is trade personas, like many men that I work with do, you know, mm -hmm. I'm the nice guy, I'm the life of the party, I'm the successful business person, I'm all these different things to all these different people. But the one person who I don't know who I am is what's inside of me. Mm -hmm. And that's where that's the, that I think that's the power of shame. I think it separates us from our true self. Mm -hmm. And we walk through life sometimes saying, so I don't even know who I am anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's pretty powerful. That plays into a lot of what you're talking about with placation was one mm -hmm. thing you were mentioning is placation or people pleasing or fawning, like there's many different words for it. But one of the things we know, or rather, I talk about a lot, and this is how I see it is, you know, the function of placating or fawning, mm. or people pleasing, is to hide the core self from potential pain. So I always picture it as like a seed, right? So for me, I was bullied severely for most of my life until I was about 18 years old. And so I became this person that can like slip in and out of masks for people. So that I, so basically I could be the person you need me to be so you don't look at me. And essentially the idea is I'm going to sure put the light on you so that I can protect myself. And you do that for long enough and you forget who the self is that you're protecting and you only know the persona. And that from my own personal experiences leaves this hollow feeling in the back of everything you do because you're just a fundamental discontent or sadness or what a Churchill call it the black dog of depression like this little piece of depression in the background that you're not quite you're running from you're not quite answering but it's always there so you have to like get to the next party get to the next exciting event get to the next girlfriend all of these things you're trying to do to run away from the idea that wait actually I have no idea what I need what I want, how to fulfill myself, not because I'm broken, but because I became so efficient at protecting myself that I forgot to look at the self. Mm. And I view that shame filter as the shield in like the core wound, I guess, in EFT would call it uh, hiding that core self. Mm -hmm. Right. So if somebody gets close to it, the shame thing goes off, then you put on a mask, you know, shields up like in Star Trek, red alert. Yeah, that was a lot. You take it from here. What do you think of that? <laughs> Over to you, Dave. Um, so, you know, I, I, I relate. And, and I think um, when we take a look at pleasing or placating, it's interesting because, you know, if I, if I as a pleaser, and yes, I suffer from the disease to please because it's one of the things that when I was growing up, if people around me were happy, I felt safe. But not mm -hmm. only that, I felt loved and I felt connected. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, the more I pleased others, the less I had room for myself. Mm -hmm. And the paradox is the thing that drives my pleasing behavior was the fact that I believed that I wasn't worth it. Mm -hmm. So no one would love me just for who I am. And so what I do, I pleased others. And the irony was that I was denying who I was. So I was actually fulfilling the one thing that um, 
that I was afraid of, mm -hmm. which was, you know, not appreciating who I was, not loving who I was, but most importantly, not accepting who I was mm -hmm. and thinking that I needed to be somebody other than who I was so that people would accept me. Mm -hmm. And so spending so much energy trying to help make sure everybody else is happy. Mm -hmm. And then the placating shows up, which is telling people what people, what I think people want to hear mm -hmm. as opposed to what they need to hear. In other words, you know, the, the cost of placating is honesty. Mm -hmm. And so learning how to lie creatively in order to say the right thing and then be devastated if what I said wasn't the right thing, because now the threat is, uh oh, you're not going to like me now. Mm -hmm. Now I'm going to be alone or now I'm going to be back in my suffering and by myself, which is the ultimate pain. Mm -hmm. is you know in my mind which is is a hidden suffering that can't be shared with others and can't be can, you know and there's no way to connect because the pain of who i believe i am prevents me from reaching out or mm -hmm. whatever those stories are that i tell myself that keeps me isolated or um individualized instead of um connected with others Mm -hmm. that makes sense yeah i think isolation we'll probably get to this later but isolation is the most deadly of all of it i would mm. say and i think I it's i think that we are driven to connect and everything i mean if you look at what you had said I and mean, you and i share this story we are putting on these masks in order to feel valuable what we want to do is feel valuable and be connected but the pain that comes from that is so great that we have to set the environment up by placating in order to be valued. Mm -hmm. But we are not being seen when we do that. We're showing. So it's the mm -hmm. performance piece. So then you can't be seen at all. And that's part of what drives that, that depression piece is that it's false. Inauthentic is something I, I use the authenticity and inauthenticity a lot in my practice for this exact reason. And we end up setting up an environment where we no longer know how to be authentic. So we have to keep driving that value train by placating to other people. But what I find amazing about all of this is these are tactics used to fulfill these needs based on whatever tools we had available and that we learned when we were younger. Mm -hmm. And so it's not a deliberate and something I always have to make sure to remind myself and my clients is it's not deliberately trying to self-sabotage. You're not deliberately trying to hide yourself and feel alone. You're trying to fill that need with which, whatever you have at the time that ends up causing this placation because it comes from a place of shame. Mm -hmm. Like uh, I call it the 4D world, right? Mm. Drugs, drama, drinking, and decadence. Mm. And That's good. You know the 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 way in which a lot of of human beings cope with that very feeling of being alone mm -hmm. the sense of loneliness that so many um especially now during this pandemic and mm -hmm. isolation and um and just not understanding or even having the being equipped to be able to express what is going on inside mm -hmm. and you know like it's 
it can be so challenging and you then you add all the other elements that people are grappling with mm. like you know trying to hold down a job trying to raise a family trying to manage work life and balance work life balance when many of us are working from home and the lines of well what is home and what is work get blurred regularly mm. there's just no off switch anymore mm. and 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 the irony is that you know some of my clients just like i have experienced feeling alone in a crowd like being a being yeah. in a house full of people and feeling alone because there's that something happens inside that there's a hurt there's a pain or there's this suffering and you know i've had clients tell me well i don't want to share this because other people are going through their own stuff mm -hmm. and so they're holding it inside and not not finding an outlet that's that's i i don't want to say healthy because that sounds like a judgment but mm -hmm. but it is it's like it's just not healthy or it doesn't serve them so they're coming up with coping mechanisms that that really don't serve them rather than choosing mm -hmm. connection yeah it's a coping mechanism designed to drive people away or keep them at a distance rather than invite them in mm -hmm. and that's something that uh like i am very good at and that's something that I've been working on for years is like, okay, just invite people in. And part of the skill set you develop as a people pleaser when you're trying to protect yourself in this way is giving off the airs of being good to go. Mm -hmm. I'll help you with whatever you need because I have like, we have, we call it the broad shoulder syndrome in my household. Well, if I got tough shoulders or big shoulders, so don't worry about me. Let's just worry about you. And meanwhile, I'm like dying inside or deep grieving or sad. And what I, what I find interesting is when you call this out. So for a lot of people that I've met, and then this was, this is exactly my journey. Is that like in my, in my twenties, I didn't know this shit. I had no idea how to call out my emotions or what I was feeling. I didn't know I was grieving or lonely or depressed. I didn't know what that meant or sad. I didn't know that I was alone in a crowd. There was just something off about it mm -hmm. until it was called to attention. And then until I called it into attention myself. So what do you think that process is for people? Because if you're coming from, I call it like the John Wayne mentality, pull up your bootstraps and toughen up and you've lived in that world, you don't know you're sad at all. Well, we're going to have to teach men how to connect to their feelings. <laughs> well done. Um, you know, I think the, um, that's it. I think the, the guide to helping men understand. And again, I'm just focusing on men here The to, understand that the pathway through the suffering and the pain is through understanding what they're feeling, why they're feeling it, and then learning how to express it in a way that helps people understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's why I believe like group therapy and not necessarily group therapy, but even group peer to peer support groups mm -hmm. are so powerful because they offer um, facilitated well, they can be an environment for truth telling, mm -hmm. for disclosure, for um, men just 
unburdening themselves emotionally and psychologically um, in a way where they're witnessed and um, and and can be heard mm-hmm. differently, perhaps than they're used to, or even you know, it's shockingly, I was learning as I'm working with you know my clients that men are just so bereft of being heard mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in a way that that helps them connect to who they are and in some cases you know just listening to a man in a way that just allows him to just express himself without judgment brings a man to tears almost immediately it's mm-hmm. just it like i was shocked when it first started noticing that pattern that mm-hmm. men would just be so emotional after they get through the guarded period mm-hmm. just you know the notice that i'm not going anywhere you can tell me whatever it is that you want and i'm going to stand right here beside you as you go through your journey um you're not alone mm-hmm. you can say anything you want because that's part of the journey and I've walked the path with you in some way or form, Mm -hmm. you know, I think there's some freedom in that for men. And, and I think uh, that's in my mind, the way through this. Mm -hmm. Cause you're not alone. It's inviting them in. I know that's one of the most beautiful pieces of being in therapy, both as a client and a therapist. And we talk about this a lot on this podcast, and this is a great thing to introduce is how, the point of therapy is creating a safe space where you are seen and heard mm-hmm. entirely for who you are, regardless. And for many of the people I've talked to, that's the first time in their life that's happened. Yeah, man. Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And then so, so some sun men go for tear, you know, they, they have these moments in, in sessions where they're going to tears mm. and they're crying. And the first thing they do is what? Apologize. Right. Every they're time. Apologizing yeah. for their tears. Yeah. And I'm like, brother, there's no need to like, you know, thank you for the apology. And let's talk about tears. Tears are just a truth response from your body. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're 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 experiencing this deep truth and tears are something that are uncontrollable. And mm-hmm. all they are is just you know, they're, they're a release. The way I, yeah, they're, they're testaments of courage and vulnerability. Mm-hmm. That's how I see it. And when men are given the freedom to let that to deepen their breath and go into their tears. Oh, it's, it's an incredible experience to witness. And, you know, for the years that I've done this work on myself, it's so freeing to, mm-hmm. to just fall into that deep sadness and grief and come out the other side empty and fill it with the joy and the passion and the excitement and perhaps the purpose of my life that I've that I haven't connected to because the sadness has been in the way or Mm -hmm. you know in some cases men who go to tears when they get past the tears they're sitting in piles of anger Mm -hmm. and then men who go to anger once they get past the anger sitting in pools of tears yeah you know it's it's extraordinary to see that happen and and powerful to witness the emergence or the transformation when it occurs yeah because you know one of the ways i view this with the tears 
is that you'll spend many years of your life balled up and tense because you're holding it back internally and externally. You're just holding it all back and you're letting it out in irritation or anger mm. or uh, dismissal. So sometimes it's just so painful and what you need to get out is so intense that you dissociate from the world around you. Mm. And then you miss out on your life. And then when you're given permission to release, it's very much a release. And for a lot of, of men, and you know, my case in particular as well, I hadn't done that before. So you also have to learn how to allow yourself to do that. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, many years ago, I was, uh, I was invited to a men's group. Um, gosh, this had to be going on nearly 20 years now. Um, and I didn't know what a men's group was. Mm -hmm. And I showed up at this place by invitation to a man who became my mentor. And, um, I went into this environment. I was told to meet at this place for a period of like at six 30, don't be late. So I showed up at six 30 PM. I walk in, there's a room had to be about 18 guys in this room door closes at six 30 and we're in there till nine 30. And um, I was like, what have I, what am I getting myself into? And what was in the room was the room, the men were in a, and we're in circle and in the room, there were these two big bags. And I think I was there for, I don't know, five minutes, maybe 10. It, it feels, you know, it's hard to remember exactly, but all I remember is being invited to the middle of the circle and then starting to hit this bag and express myself and I think I hit the bag for like, I don't know, I want to say 15 or 20 minutes. And then after I hit the bag and expressed my anger, all this pent up anger that I hadn't had any place safely to express it, I ended up in a pile of tears at the bottom of it all and just weeped for probably the same amount of time. Mm -hmm. And that was the beginning of my own personal journey and figuring out who I was as a man, especially a man around other men. And mm -hmm. And, and how do I navigate that world? And who did I think I was? And why did I have to play the role of being somebody I wasn't when I was in that setting? Mm. And then how that extended into my personal life and other relationships with, with women and my family. And just, yeah, there was such a powerful learning for me to understand that um, my emotions were not something I was using as an asset. They were actually more of a liability for me. And mm. I had to learn how to really use the feelings and emotions that affected my behavior. And then ultimately how my behavior affected my relationships. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I could connect those, I was able to understand how to make the changes that in many ways made relationships more fulfilling for mm -hmm. me. And that's still a journey that I'm on right now. I mean, you know, look at our friendship, for example. Um, you know, I have no idea how you feel about me, man. <laughs> oh, I love you, Dave. You know that. Thank Come you. on. I love you too, man. <laughs> but seriously, though, a lot of men struggle with that. And a lot yeah. of men don't know the connection between feelings, emotions, behavior, and relationships. And mm. so, you know, when we start to put those pieces together, it kind of falls into place for some men. Yeah, and it's such a hard journey to go through because you spent your whole life with those things being uh, invalid, mm -hmm. right? None of them are ever validated. And you're taught from like a young age 
that you're not to have them. Big boys don't cry. You've said it. You're not to have them. Oh, yeah. So then when you cry, it's this like shame spiral because it's like something's wrong with me. Mm-hmm. You know, I always laugh when you see those like robots on TV where they say, why am I leaking? You know, I think Data said that a few times. Uh, and that's something that I'll say every once in a while when I start crying, like watching a TV show. But that is a, definitely a shame response because I know full well what's going on. It's like the beauty of the situation has, has caught me or the excitement or the sadness has caught me and I'm expressing itself and I shouldn't hold back. But I think a lot of what happens here is you end up, if you're not in an environment where you're allowed to express that, that's that's one thing. That's externally, people are weaponizing shame to keep you in place, to keep you placating, to keep you fawning. Say more about that. How do you mean? So what I mean by that is if you grow up, let's say you grow up with uh, like an emotionally stunted parents, let's say, okay. or emotionally distant parents. So they're going through the same struggles, but instead of dealing with it, they're doing the same thing you're doing now, and that's hiding it. Mm-hmm. What they're going to do is, if you have those emotions, they're going to teach you that they're invalid. Mm. So they'll ridicule you, send you to your room, call you a baby, all of these things. In order to grow that shame response in you, so that eventually they don't need to ridicule you anymore. You can do it yourself. So that's what I call weaponized shame. Mm. So people will do this to you in order to teach you how to hold yourself back. And I also have a theory about weaponized guilt too, but we're talking about shame today. Oh, I, go ahead. Go <laughs> ahead. I was the same for guilt. And you see this a lot with uh, what I would say is like highly anxious parents will teach kids how not to do something in order to make sure that the parents don't have to encounter something they can't handle. Mm. And I think that happens a lot instead of, so instead of talking someone through something that's dangerous, they would say, you're stupid. Why would you do that? What a dumb thing to do. And you see that as guilt. I see that as guilt. Mm. And I think that it's, uh, for me, guilt, is a pieces of what you had said, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that there's use for the tool of guilt to help us like, ooh, I didn't like the way I handled that. Instead of holding myself down with the weight of guilt, I can use Mm -hmm. that as like, I call it like a bat sonar. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, wait a minute. Okay, so how in the future, how would I have liked to act? What should I have done here? And instead of it being a judgment against yourself, it's a learning process. Mm -hmm. But if guilt is weaponized, then the minute you feel that guilt, you go straight into shame. So guilt becomes like a gateway into holding yourself back. And so instead of saying, this is what I should have done here, you immediately go, fuck, I'm an idiot. Hmm. Interesting. You know, I grew up at, it's so interesting at what you said because it just triggered a memory for me. <laughs> Growing up, there was a popular TV show, a cartoon called Wait Till Your Father Gets Home. Oh dear. I can even remember the theme song. Wait till your father gets until your father gets wait till your father gets home. Right. And of course it was sung by the mother. Right. Mm -hmm. So like right away, it was like, Oh wow. What a setup. Yeah. It's deeply problematic. Mom gets upset. Go to your room and wait till your father gets home. Mm. That was my life. Mm. And I got to tell you, the pain of what happens when dad gets home was way less than the pain of waiting until dad got home Mm -hmm. alone in my room. 
And so to your point, we're, we learn as children, perhaps, that um, we, when we get sent to our room, we're meant to be alone. We're meant to be alone with what it is that we did, with the problem, with the thing that we did that was wrong, to reinforce the belief that somehow something inside of us is broken. Mm -hmm. and, and what a horrible way to reinforce that pain. And, mm -hmm. and that's what happened with me. I mean, the longer, and then it wasn't really a useful solution because I knew almost immediately after a while, at least this is in my distant memory now, um, that, well, if I did something, I might as well just go to my room now because that's ultimately where I'm going to end up. Mm -hmm. And then the waiting and then the loneliness and then the ignoring and then the identification of there must be something seriously wrong with me if um, my parents are distant from me if mm -hmm. I've made a mistake and yeah. like wow that's a loaded weapon for sure and yeah and isn't that powerful like look, look, just look at the mechanics of that right so yeah. the, the whole mechanics of it is to internalize the narrative towards something must be wrong with you so I don't deserve to be a part of the group until a set period of time. So now I have to deal with the isolation. I deserve to be isolated. I can't be around other people. All of this stuff shows up until you yourself said, I just did something wrong. I should go to my room and isolate myself. So now you've learned how to do it to yourself. 100%. And then, you know, and then that extends to my environment because mm -hmm. we know that we develop as a result of our environment. Mm -hmm. And so when my parents, would do as most married couples do have arguments and raise voices and things like that. It was very easy for me to associate, Oh, they must be arguing about something I did or didn't do mm -hmm. because inside I'm not enough or I'm too much. Mm -hmm. And either one of those is not acceptable. And so I, you know, I grew up in an environment where my parents, at least one of my parents was severely traumatized, went through a horrible experience. And mm -hmm. as a result, I was raised by a parent who had had been traumatized and I was raised in a vicariously traumatized parenting style mm -hmm. and which ultimately affected who I was as a young man or young boy and then ultimately adolescent. And then, you know, growing into my my 20s, I still struggled with who I was, you know, mm -hmm. I had struggles with dishonesty and, and self-sabotaging behaviors. And, you know, I didn't know who I was and it took me years to figure it out and mm -hmm. I'm still figuring it <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah. That's a lifelong but, journey for sure. Who is that guy in the mirror today? <laughs> right? Yeah. So. Yeah. And it really all does start with acknowledging that something's there that these mm -hmm. emotions want to come out and that yeah. most importantly, I think for my own personal journey and what I've seen, uh, and this was like the biggest thing that I ever learned for myself was that the way I was protecting myself. So for me, like I go straight to like dissociation and freeze and then placating. It's like, whoop, I'm getting out of here. So, the, so I have like stories of how people can get really angry at me and like yelling to the point where it's like getting violent and I'm not in the room. Like I'm staring right at you, but I'm gone. And that's like a typical trauma response from all the bullying that I had. And so one day when it was explained to me or shown 
that all of the ways I've been acting were tools for my project protection and never self-sabotage is when the game changed for me. And what I mean is it allowed me to notice that the shame was like a catalyst for these defenses to show up and not that I was a problem or broken. Mm -hmm. And this isn't something, uh, full disclosure, that was like one conversation. I was like, oh, perfect. Great. I don't have to be ashamed. This took a long time of habit and repeated and conversations. But when you learn that you're not broken and the things that you're using are ways to protect yourself, then you can see them in a very different light. Because then you can start asking different questions like, okay, I don't really want to hide from my family. What is it that I want here? Do I want to connect more? Is this tool that I'm using to connect helping? Do I know what would help? And start to build those little boundaries. And the boundaries are big because that's the safety piece. That's where you, you can start to stand up and say, okay, well, I'm going to have to start teaching the people around me how to treat me so that this response isn't elicited. You can't use weaponized shame against me right now. That's not how we're going to have this conversation. Yeah, like, I, so you and I share um, similar background with ADHD, mm -hmm. and um, I also have another, the, the full cocktail mix with learning challenges like mm -hmm. dyslexia and a couple other learning differences that I grew up with, but, you know, was never diagnosed with until it was way, way into my life. Mm -hmm. And recognizing in, an, in addition to all of that, um, grappling with struggles of self-identity and managing, you know, attention deficit and, and not surprising, I'm sure that was environmental as well in many mm -hmm. ways as, and the learning challenges, because I could never really learn the way that most did at mm. least never is a strong word but what i'm what i what i didn't do and what i didn't do successfully was i was never a good student mm. so that also fed the shame inside of me that said mm. well something's definitely broken because look at all the people that are getting this and i'm not understanding half the shit we're talking about mm -hmm. and do you think i'm going to raise my hand and ask a question uh-uh because mm -hmm. if i ask a question and it's a stupid question, that's just going to make it worse. Mm -hmm. So again, the suffering of not learning, the suffering of being disconnected from the beauty and the magic of learning mm -hmm. how to grow and how to um, develop self was broken inside of me because I wouldn't allow the vulnerability to let people in to go, I'm struggling here, help me. Mm -hmm. because of fear of ridicule and all those other things and that you know that separated so many things for me in mm -hmm. you know adhd um starting things never finishing them like you know all the things that we talked about in previous conversations set up disappointment in my relationships with many people mm -hmm. and in my life that's my biggest fear being <clears throat> the disappointment because mm -hmm. disappointment meant people wouldn't want to be around me and if i disappointed others it meant that ultimately i would wind up alone mm. alone with my own pain with no one to share it with and no one to help me through it and um 
And so I operated completely out of the fear of not wanting to be a disappointment, which is where the placating and the pleasing and everything surfaced for me. Mm -hmm. And it took me decades to figure out how being a professional pleaser was a coping mechanism that my brain was saying, this will keep you safe. Just do mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. Even though in reality, it wasn't the best strategy. And, mm -hmm. it, you know, and it took a long time to separate what's the perceived threat and what's the actual danger? Yeah, <clears throat> that's a really good point because it's these defenses are able to keep you safe. Mm -hmm. They're not in by any means a bridge to get your needs met. And I think that's really the distinction is that's what we can notice. And uh I always call these things the difference between an efficient and inefficient tool because there's no judgments on how you're protecting yourself. Mm. And so that is the moment where you can notice that it's inefficient. Mm. Perhaps this is the wrong tool because you know what? It's not getting my needs met. I'm fundamentally discontent and unhappy and isolated. So yes, it's protecting me. Fair enough. But it's not helping me get what I need. And that leads to the most important part of all of this. And, I, and this goes right full circle to what you were mentioning before about knowing who you are, who that self is. Knowing who you are is knowing what needs you're looking to get met. Mm -hmm. What are your needs and want? What do you enjoy? How do you want to fulfill your life? And so once you can understand how these tools work, you can start asking yourself that question. Mm -hmm. And how powerful of a question is that? what do I actually need here? And it has to start with giving yourself permission to ask that question. And the natural evolution of what do I need from here to, you know, moving more into mature partnership with your intimate partner and mm -hmm. say, what do we both want here? Mm -hmm. What do we both need here? But I can't get to what do we both need here until I figure out what I want. And it's so interesting you should say that because, you know, in other forms, when I've done talks and I've said to the audience, okay, raise your hand if you're getting everything you want in your life, right? And no one raises their hand. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I say, so there's room for improvement. And the, and the thing is, most, and I, I would say most human beings struggle with getting their needs met. Mm -hmm. A, because some of them don't even know what they want. Mm -hmm. And B, well, if I ask for what I want, you know, um, I might not get it and that would be wounding and painful. And so when we bring this back to men's work, the wounded little boy asks for what he wants and when he doesn't get it, he throws a tantrum. Mm -hmm. But the mature man asks for what he wants with an understanding that he may or may not get it and that's okay. Mm -hmm. But there's a big gap there between those two and it takes time for men to really start to understand where they're operating from the wound and where they're operating from the maturity that they're starting to align themselves with mm -hmm. you know it doesn't apply to every man but it certainly applies to the majority mm -hmm. and trying to find a way to <laughs> yeah i'm Go with ahead. you on that um and trying to find a way to give yourself permission amidst all of that wound and shame yes. to say yes. that you're worthy of this that's quite the powerful journey mm -hmm. you know because i i know that f you know when it when it was said to me that the tools i was using weren't self-sabotage 
Well, now I have to reconcile with, at that time, I had to reconcile with 20 years of hatred towards myself for how I act. Mm -hmm. And anger and disappointment at myself for doing these things. And now I have to try to figure out that actually what I was doing was trying to protect myself. Like, that's quite the volcano to erupt. Oh, yeah. And then out comes the stick, right? With self-disappointment. Mm -hmm. You know, all of a sudden, I, I hate myself. I'm disappointed. I'm no good. I'm whatever those stories are. Mm -hmm. And then the paradox, of course, at least for me, is the harder I am on myself, inevitably, the harder I am on others, mm -hmm. right? Because I create these private rules of engagement for life, these, these expectations and standards that I hold others to. Mm -hmm. And when they don't meet those unspoken or hidden rules of engagement that I've put on them, I, you know, they disappoint me mm -hmm. and I judge them and then I resent them. And if I don't meet my own standards that I've set for others, well, then I just beat myself up mercilessly mm -hmm. and mercilessly rather. And the, you know, and then I take that out on others. Like that's been my pattern for years, mm -hmm. you know, being the bully and setting myself up to be bullied. It's the, there's been many times when that's happened and, and, you know, I've had to really come to terms with understanding that much of that came from wounds that I didn't even appreciate were affecting my life in ways that mm -hmm. only the people who truly cared about me would let me know how I was impacting them because mm -hmm. I was so unaware of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's the method. It's a classic projection, right? Mm -hmm. We talk about projection a lot and that's, you know, one of the things that I look at myself and, and will teach clients is to use that as a signal. Mm -hmm. If you don't understand what's going on inside, look at how you're treating other people. Right. And then you'll get a glimpse as to how you're talking to yourself. If you don't like how you're treating other people or you don't like getting mad, like at your kid or somebody right. at work, then immediately stop and try to think, okay, what is it that I'm mad at here? And have I built a rule that I, or a standard for myself I'm not meeting that is related to this? And that I find to be a very interesting tactic because it helps you look inward mm -hmm. to see what, what wound is operating. You know, and then we get to the classic conversation, you know, in therapy of, okay, well, if we look back to when you're a kid and you can see when this first happened, you first felt this feeling, if we could find when that first memory was, can you take a minute to step out of that, give it a bird's eye view and try to say to yourself, you know what, what did, what did that child need here? We know what they got. We know how it affected them. What did they need here? Mm -hmm. And that'll give you the clue as to what you need now, because that hurt has followed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, like that, you know, the leaky gas tank that has the gas on the ground that mm -hmm. follows wherever the vehicle's going and all you need is a spark to ignite and you know you can't escape it you can't mm -hmm. outrun your wound mm -hmm. and um like i really appreciate that you know what did what did the child or what did that individual want and what did they end up getting Mm. such a profound and powerful investigation to understand 
what the client might be going through mm -hmm. and and how they identified that experience, what meaning they associated with that mm -hmm. and what that, you know, how they made that part of who they were. You know, the, uh, the old adage, the biography becomes the biology. Mm. And, um, and so, or sorry, I think I'm it's the other way around the biology, bio, biology becomes the biography. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> it's both, <laughs> but the point I'm making is that, you know, um, once we determine that we've, we associate a meaning or once I put meaning into something in my life, like an event, and I, you know, rarely do I ever tell myself a story that has a happy ending. Mm -hmm. It's just always been something for me. It's like anything that happens is, you know, the glass half empty situation mm -hmm. that I've had to learn to change, to reshape mm -hmm. or, or reframe, to find the joy and reconnect to that, you know? And yeah, it's funny, you know, because the older I've gotten, the harder, it has been to maintain that joy and that happiness and playfulness. It's mm -hmm. almost like I've put it on the shelf as hard as that is to admit. And um, I, sometimes I've, I forget what it's like to play. Mm. Um, yeah. When, when it's wow. so essential to, it's so essential to the, the human experience. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things, <clears throat> one of the things this is reminding me of is identity conversations. Mm. And that, uh, you know, Michel Foucault talks a lot about, uh, so here's the philosophy minute, um, how our identities are made up based on the multiple practices we engage in. So part of the work when I uh, walk with a client on their timeline, so I'm, I'm using the language that my own therapist used on me. So when we walk on my timeline to find out where that wound began and how and what we learned about it, what we needed, what we're looking for is what practice did we start to learn to engage in to protect ourselves? What did we mm -hmm. learn from that in order to be reinforced over and over again until it's become a part of our identity? Mm -hmm. And then when you can ask yourself the question, what did that child need instead of what they got? That gives you the kernel to start to figure out, okay, what alternative practice would have been more useful here for me to get what I needed, whether it was connection, you know, because a lot of the cases if we talk about it, it's like it, the practice we learned to engage in was being dismissed, which means we're not worth it. So once you figure out as a kid, you're not worth it. Well, then all of the practices you're going to engage in is to like make for damn sure you're worth it. Placating, performance, acting out like all of these things see me see me see me is basically what you're trying to say so then you can ask yourself how is it that i could have been seen there and then build that practice yourself slowly but surely to see yourself mm -hmm. and that changes the context of the narrative you are telling yourself mm -hmm. a very different story starts to show but like everything, it needs to be reinforced. So it can't be a one-time thing. It has to be a consistent engagement with that in order to finally be able to habitually see yourself or demand that you're seen with the people around you. Right. And then you add to that, you know, the brain development in a timeline where mm -hmm. an event takes place in childhood where the brain, the, that individual's brain hasn't fully developed and that carries forward in 
meaning making starts and mm -hmm. that the distortion of what mm -hmm. that meaning could be because um, a child into an adolescent maybe is still struggling with understanding what's truly going on. Mm -hmm. How do you separate fact from fiction when the brain hasn't developed is mm -hmm. to the extent that it needs to in order to really understand and reflect? Um, mm -hmm. I find that just such an interesting paradox. As we grow, there's so many things that there's so many ways in which I get in my own way. And sometimes it has nothing to do with willfulness. It has to do with immaturity or lack of effective brain development or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. you know? um, yeah, timeline is such an important element to all of that to help clients understand when they're looking back. That's pretty amazing. So one thing that came to mind here, which I haven't thought of before, is then as an adult, when we look back, we are in a privileged position because we're adults now. We have years of experience that can look at that child and you can actually, with enough digging, whatever you say that child needs, you actually know that's the case. Mm -hmm. It's not coming from a teenage brain or a kid's brain. It's coming from what you've seen, how you observe and how your life went. Mm -hmm. So when you acknowledge that practice, you're in a privileged position to actually speak your truth as painful as it is and start yeah. that road to recovery without a doubt mm. yeah i like the looking back it's you know as an adult i i, I preference so-called adult at times. <laughs> um you know because an understanding and then the 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 medley of emotion that surfaces when an adult reflects back on his or her life and sees things from the adult lens Mm -hmm. to make meaning and in a different meaning perhaps even to change the narrative or flip the script in a way that shows them how resilient they really were mm -hmm. as opposed to you know how in, um, powerless they told themselves they were yeah that's right. such an important point such an important point if I look back on my own life and this this is the recent development in my own therapy was you know with all the times I was bullied, what did I need? Mm. And now you're just sparking something for me now is because it's like, well, what I needed, what I wanted was to connect with my peer group. I liked hanging. And I always say this. I'm like a socially anxious person who's also an extrovert. I fucking love people. love meeting them. I love everything. You know, I when I went to India, you can drop me in the middle of a place with like 15 million people and I was like in heaven, right? And so there was always a funny contradiction that I always talk about being socially anxious. But in truth, if you look at all of the history of bullying and being ashamed, uh, I kept going back. I kept trying to connect with the group no matter what happened, because that's what I really wanted. I really wanted to be a part of it. And no matter how much bullying I went together, it left some scars, but I kept going back, kept going back. And there was only a brief five year period where I didn't leave my basement. But then the second I moved to Fredericton, New Brunswick to go to university, I came right out of it again. I went, went out swinging, met people, you know, all of these things. And so that really does highlight what I wanted, what I needed from that group, and how resilient I was, despite mm -hmm. the story I tell myself about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting you should mention that. There, It reminds me of a process that I did once with uh, a group of men who 
there was a man who was really struggling with the pain of being bullied and trying to get into the pack. It was almost like we were doing a metaphor wolf pack, like mm. wanting to get into the back into the pack. And the the idea that the men who he wanted in this process, he wanted to fit in. And so they all circled it together with their backs to him and he had to fight his way into the circle and mm. the pain and the the heartache and the struggle that it was to get into that circle was very reminiscent of the bullying that he experienced related to how desperate he wanted connection and how painful that process was for him mm -hmm. and um you know you reminded me of that and i think to myself my gosh that's my life too i mean mm. i really had no clue how to inter how to relate to others especially my peers and i was so busy putting on personas covering up my shame inventing guy the guy who i thought i needed to be mm -hmm. and then really not liking that guy and then you know um separating myself and being the person who you know the painful hearing about the invitation to the party that everybody went to and i wasn't invited to mm -hmm. you know like that was a horrible experience that happened to me numerous times and you know i was in and I could understand why I wasn't a, a likable person. I was an asshole back then and mm. because I thought that was what I needed to be in order to, to, um, to be safe. And mm -hmm. like, what a, what a paradox of pain I set mm. myself up for in that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's strange looking back, seeing the mm -hmm. tools and what's the needs and then how to integrate that. And I guess it all boils down to, I guess, the real shame killer, if I can put out a potential album title, which would be awesome, would be... Or group. Yeah, or a group, shame killers. Uh, <laughs> it would be being open to see yourself, being vulnerable enough to know what you need, and then going through the process to being real, not only with yourself, but with others. And that's a large part of what therapy is all about. It's an, you know, an hour a week where it's all about you and that's it with someone who gives a shit and that's why they're there. And then you get to practice that mm -hmm. as you get used to it and go through the hard stuff to finally figure out what you want from your life. That is the beauty of it. You know, notwithstanding that us therapists get paid to do that. That's right. <laughs> that we have to dis suspend disbelief that, you know, our job is to is to really give people that experience in mm -hmm. my mind where the trust that we imbue the the safety that we create makes it worth that time mm -hmm. makes it worth it teaches people to to value themselves that's right and to come back to that place to learn more about who they are so they can practice what they're learning in their life and come back and say, Hey, this worked, this didn't, or here's what I'm learning about myself. And isn't it a beautiful experience such as life? That's right. And that's why like, and, I, and I'll end with this here. That's why it always comes back to you. And I say this in almost every single podcast, one of the most important things you can do for yourself is to reach out to a therapist. But the second most important thing you can do is make sure that therapist fits. Mm -hmm. Don't just go to therapy and be obligated to go if it's not working. And I know with my own clients, I, I always, in the first session, it's always, okay, let's take two sessions to see if we jive. Mm -hmm. And if we don't jive, 
I'll help you find someone better. Because now we've had two conversations. I know a little bit about the backstory so I can help you find someone who's more suitable. And I think so many potential clients out there or people who need therapy either don't have access to it because they don't know how to navigate the world. They don't know the difference between like cognitive behavioral therapy, narrative therapy, all of these jargons, which is the point of the podcast. But also they don't know that they can shop. It's another word I use for it. They don't know that you can reach out to a therapist, have a conversation and sort out if you're going to connect. Because that is, as we know from reading it, because we all did research methods, which was rough. It's a rough class. That the number one uh, variable to positive outcomes in therapy is the therapeutic relationship. How the client and therapist get along. And does this work is the number one. So I, uh, I'm going to leave this with that statement is to make sure that if you're reaching out to a therapist, you are fully supposed to ask a million and a half questions and figure out if it works for you. And if it doesn't, find someone else. It's not you. It's just you don't fit. And the therapist's way of doing it doesn't fit. And that's, that's okay. It makes sense. It's a very human-to-human conversation. What do you think of that, Dave? I'll throw that back at you, and then I'll close off. The- oh. <laughs> Okay, one hundred percent. I mean, you know, the the reality is that um, I one hundred percent agree with you. Is what I meant by that. Mm-hmm. I um, the reality is that we're so overstretched in in serving clients in this in this sector of mental health that I think a lot of clients are really just happy to find anybody, and that's mm-hmm. that's unfortunate because one you know fit is essential. Mm-hmm. And um, I, m- my belief is that everybody has the right to choose. And that is just really reinforced every single time I'm with a client. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, if you're expecting me to give you advice, if you're expecting me to judge you, it's not going to happen. Everything that we're talking about is a re- is related to the choices that you're willing to make or you're not willing to make. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the journey, including working with and finding the ideal therapist for you, mm-hmm. if you have that ability and the resources to find, you know, more than one, mm-hmm. um, because many, as we know, many therapists are just so overstretched right now. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a busy time for us. It is. Well, all right, Dave. This has been awesome, as always, as expected. Thank you, my friend. It's so a good powerful. to with you. Yeah, and it was. It was powerful. I look forward to jumping into men tell stories. We're going to start recording in eight days. It's going to be it's going to be hard to get through the week knowing that Monday's showing up. It's like get here already. Um, but yeah, we'll publish that as soon as we're ready to go with it. And on top of that, uh, I just wanted to give you a, a minute to just shout out your website again, let people know where to find you. Sure, it's uh, Shift Counseling. Um, you can reach me at uh, shift-counseling.ca. And or you can email me at david at shift-counseling.ca. Happy to answer any questions or yeah. So thanks, Chuck, for this opportunity. And um, like I said, it's such a joy to be connected to you and just hang with you and and you know talk and connect. And I love it. And I love you. And thanks. Well, I love you too. It's always great, man. And all right, everybody, thanks again for listening to the podcast. If you have any questions, uh, feedback, comments, shout outs, whatever, you can reach me on the Instagram, 
to.couch. Uh, send me a message, connect, and we'll take it from there. Other than that, we'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. Mm-hmm.